Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast live stream. Yes, Western civilization uh, may be falling, but we will persevere. <laughs> we uh, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is king no matter what happens on this earth. And so um, I'm happy to be here to do a live stream to answer some questions. I know I get a lot of questions and I try to keep up as much as I possibly can with the questions I get, but I can't always do it. So this is an opportunity. I'm going to answer some questions that have been sent to me uh, via a Patreon, uh, Patreon supporters, and then I'm just going to kind of open it up to those who are streaming and want to ask questions. Um, there's not a time limit. I'd like to try to keep it within an hour if possible, which means I'll probably go over an hour. You, you know me. I'm, I tend to be, I tend to have longer episodes uh, sometimes. And uh, when I've, you know, the interesting thing is when I've done shorter episodes, some people tell me that they don't like it and they, they'd rather have the long ones. And usually the shorter the episode, the less views. I don't know why that is. But then when I do a, a mega edition, I get emails from people telling me it's too long. So I, I don't know how to please everyone, but <laughs> we're going to do a little mix. And today, hopefully, we'll, we'll keep that balance of uh, maybe an hour or so. So not a mega edition, but not uh, a really short episode either. Um, let, let's get started with a couple things. Um, I, and, and this is just, I mean, you could talk about so many things going on right now. I mean, every morning I get up and I check the news I, I just can't believe what I'm seeing sometimes. Uh, I mean, I can, but it's just, it's happening so fast, it, it kind of leaves your head spinning. Um, I live in uh, the state of Virginia, and this morning, uh, th this was the deal this morning, I woke up, and I must have seen like five different um, updates, lakes changing their names, uh, or people changing the name of lakes, there we go, lakes don't change anything, but people changing the name of, uh, of a lake uh, here in Virginia, and taking down monuments all over the place. One was uh, actual, like a gravestone. It was it was actually, there was um, soldiers buried underneath it, and they're taking that away, which, I mean, that's just another level of, um, I, I don't know what to call it, but uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of things are happening. High school's changing their name, so it, it's full on, it, at least where I am in Virginia, it's full on, um, if you want to call it cultural genocide, I guess you could call it that, but um, what was once honored or preserved in history is no longer and, and history is being erased and um, of course there's so many other things that are going on at the same time politically speaking and so uh, you know I don't know what it is for you you probably woke up to some headlines of your own and, um, and and we can't cover it all but I wanted to just point out a few things these are just kind of uh, barometers um, that I saw that I just thought were interesting um, this was over the July 4th weekend and I was traveling and J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, said this. Now, this isn't the worst thing J.D. Greer's ever said, obviously, but it just, it, it's <laughs> really, uh, it, I think it's a bellwether. It just tells us kind of where this convention is going and where Christianity in general is going. I mean, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, as the people of God, we look to the future with hope. Okay, I agree with that. Knowing that true liberty and justice will come as God's people declare not their independence, but their ultimate dependence on him. Hashtag July 4th, picture of an American flag. What am I supposed to make of that? I mean, is there anything to quibble with? Not, I mean, not really, but it's the context in which he makes a statement like this. It's a jab at those who would be celebrating independence from Great Britain on July 4th, a patriotic holiday in the United States where he lives. Uh, but he wants to somehow 
create a contrast as if there's something there's two opposing sides you, you know you're either uh, for celebrating independence from Great Britain or you're going to declare your ultimate dependence on God as if there's some kind of a conflict there and, and this is the the game that's been played now for for years in evangelicalism but it's ramped up now where um, somehow if you're a patriotic American that's in conflict with your ultimate allegiance, which is to the citizen, uh, which is a citizen of heaven and to the kingdom of God. And there are times when you have to make choices. Uh, every, a lot of countries have gone through this where, you know, the, I mean, I'm thinking of Nazi Germany specifically or the Soviet Union. I mean, these are the two obvious examples that are usually brought up, but the government wants to go in a bad direction and you're a Christian and you have to make a decision. What are you going to do? But we celebrate, what we're celebrating on the 4th of July isn't we're not celebrating abortion. We're not celebrating bad decisions made by the United States. We're celebrating the formation of the country itself, the formation of the United States of America. And there's nothing in conflict with celebrating the dependence on Jesus and the kingdom of God and and and, and the Lord and, and his uh, the reliance we should have on him, his provision, and then also celebrating actually a manifestation in a sense of that provision in the formation of the United States. And in fact, the two can pretty much dovetail if I mean, and I'm not going to go through the whole history of the revolution and the, and the sort of the Christian underpinning of that. But um, J.D. Greer doesn't seem to understand history too well, or uh, he's purposely trying to set up a false dichotomy here. Uh, this is another thing I saw. And this is, I guess, from June 28th. I didn't see it till yesterday. Andrew Peterson. Now, I like a lot of Andrew Peterson stuff. Um, <laughs> I used to at least, and so I'll, I'll preface it with this. I went to an Andrew Peterson concert, oh gosh, probably a year and a half ago or so. It was a Christmas concert, and I remember he was advertising Russell Moore's book, Onward, at the concert, and I thought, well, this is interesting, and I thought, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where Andrew Peterson goes. Well, this is a, a song Andrew Peterson just recently wrote. It says that he, he announced this on June 28th, a new song. A white man's lament for the death of God's beloved. And you can read the whole thing. I am not. I thought about going through and critiquing this whole thing, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to read for you the first two paragraphs, and you can see where this is going. I was walking down on Broadway in a multitude of marchers on parade. There was anger. There was passion. There was mercy. There was peace yet to be made. So, so he's essentially walking in a—he's with protesters. He's with, like, Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, kept the virus in control, or so they say. And there was sickness in the air. And to be fair, it was grief and all the grievances that plague the many years and cause the tears on every face. There are things I've done that need to be forgiven. So he's saying this. But I'm still learning how to ask. So he, he doesn't know. I mean, this sounds like, doesn't this sound like Roman Catholicism or some system where, you know, you got to go through this intricate kind of web of uh, figuring out how to be made right with God. He's still learning how to even ask for forgiveness. Because the virus in my veins has been constrained by this inherited mask. Okay, so there's the, he's got white privilege. It's been allocated to him over the course of history, and, uh, and it's in his blood. It's, it's, it's who he is. So the original sin is in who he is. And I'd rather be exposed to what is killing than to hide from what to blame. So let me lift my voice on Broadway. Let me lift my brother's cross. Let me mourn for what it cost and feel the magnitude of loss in every name. And I, he may be saying on Broadway, I think he probably lives in Nashville, and he's probably thinking of the Broadway street there in Nashville, I'm guessing. But, um, but yeah, this is, look, look at all the Christian language, you know, bearing cross, 
uh, you know, he invokes God, he invokes forgiveness and stuff. But it's all jammed into this um, this new left critique of, of the United States and critical race theory, um, understandings of complicity because of power dynamics. I mean, this is where Andrew Peterson's gone. You can read the rest of the song, and it's even worse. And I just thought to myself, man, like, what am I supposed to do with uh, some of the songs that I used to have? And and maybe I can still enjoy some of those things, and, and maybe you're thinking the same thing. But it's it's just, it breaks my heart a little. I'm still processing this a little, but um, I, I'm not overly surprised, but it's just, it's, kind of, it's something that you kind of know it's going to happen. But then when it happens, you're like, man, <laughs> it happened. And uh, and so this is where evangelicalism is going. Um, this is a, this is another thing I found this interesting. This is Sista theology, and some of you have been uh, fans of probably Dr. James White. I know Dr. James White is um, he's critiqued Sista theology. Uh, I think on more than one occasion. But uh, this is what she said recently: uh, Some of y'all are decolonizing your faith to the point that you're decolonizing your way out of the faith. And I got, I captured this guy who responds: You're my pastor. Yeah, this is a great pastor to have. Um, she's encouraging people to decolonize their faith, to you know deconstruct, kind of the same thing. And then when they leave the faith, she's saying, "Wait, hold on, hold on, you're going too far here. You shouldn't, you shouldn't decolonize your way out of the faith. Just decolonize your faith. Get rid of those things that are quote unquote racist or misogynist, etc. Things from Western civilization. Just get rid of those things, and and then you'll have a pure faith." And, and this is always what happens. This is all, this is, <laughs> of course, they were going to decolonize their way out of the faith. It's a process. And I've, I've gotten many stories. I know people that have done this, where they start nitpicking at Christianity and saying, you know, we're, we're going to just purify it. Next thing you know, they just thrown Christianity outside, out of the window. They, the baby's out with the bathwater. It's just the whole thing is uh, oppression and justification of oppression. So three kind of just... I mean, there's a bunch more I could have put here, but these are just quick things that I just wanted to show you to say, look, things things are changing at a rapid pace. Uh, J.D. Greer is the president of Southern Baptist Convention. Andrew Peterson, a very popular Christian music artist, uh, singer-songwriter, author, um, M-Diva, Sista Theology. I mean, she's um, she's a popular kind of influencer online, and I think she went to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Westminster in California. But yeah, this is where we're going. So um, let's get to some questions now, and then I will uh, loop back. I see there's already a lot of questions and comments on the YouTube channel. Keep those coming. I might not be able to get to all of them, but um, let, let's start with some that have already been submitted. Um, all right, so this one's kind of an involved one, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I'll just give you, <laughs> it dovetails with what we were just talking about. Um, there was a, an article uh, Thibidi and Abuile wrote last year, September 9th, 2019. Is there an evangelical social justice movement? So he's asking the question, is there even one? And so someone asks, I thought his arguments for his opinion, um, uh, it, it is not a movement quite weak. Your thoughts? So, so asking me what my thoughts. Yes, they're very weak. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, what I just showed you, that little bitty, um, that little bitty uh, sort of, you know, section of evangelicalism. I mean, we're not talking about all of evangelicalism. Just here's a few things I noticed over the weekend. Just shows you that Thibidi Anabwile um, has been proven wrong more and more as time goes on. Uh, he's asking, is there even one? And in the article, he tries to say, well, Tom Askell's wrong because Tom Askell's just making his argument based on Jarvis Williams' curriculum and recommended reading list. And he's 
talking about Eric Mason's woke church, and that's all you have. That's it. And, you know, if you look at what's happened, especially since he wrote this article, yeah, no, it's obvious. There's a social justice movement, and it was obvious when he wrote it. Um, I don't think there's much more to be said here, but yeah, I mean, his, his argument is he wants to just focus in on a few little things, and he's not looking at the big picture. Uh, that clearly, there's something that has changed in evangelicalism. Uh, here, so here's another question. This one's more involved, and I'm going to respond to it because I, I've had a few people send me this by Tim Keller, The Sin of Racism, and it's a part of a series, I guess, that he's putting out there. And I, I picked a few quotes from it. I, I'm not going to go over everything just because there's so much to critique, but I wanted to give you kind of his strongest arguments and represent the flow of his, his main argument here. So the question is, how do I respond to this article? So in order to respond to it, we have to understand what it's saying. So here's some quotes from Tim Keller. He says, to presuppose one's own race or nationality, now notice how he puts nationality in with that, race or nationality, is inherently superior to another, and to treat those of other races and nationalities as uh, with unfairness or unequal justice, with dismissiveness, um, or with active contempt, is a sin, and one that is in danger of the fire of hell. Now, it depends what he means by this. I could agree with it if he defines things correctly. Like, what does he mean? Treat those of other races and nationalities with unfairness or unequal justice. Now, does that mean someone who is an illegal migrant to the United States? Do I, how should we treat that person? Well, they're, they're not a citizen, so they're not going to have the same privileges that come with being a citizen of the United States within the United States, just as I wouldn't, as a United States citizen, have the same privileges in Mexico or many other countries. So... Um, God is the one who determined the boundaries for nation, national, uh, national boundaries, as Acts 17 uh, says. I mean, he divided everyone um, along linguistic groups, and that, that formed peoples all over the world. And, um, and, and of course, uh, you know, the laws um, that governed Israel were supposed to also govern the stranger, the stranger that came into Israel. So there, in a sense, we should treat those who come in here with um, uh, equal justice, uh, you know, if they're accused of murder or another crime that God finds offensive that are against our laws, yes, they should be brought to trial. But but they're also breaking a law if they come in. And so I, I just, and Tim Keller's not applying this specifically to uh, illegal migrants, but I'm just thinking through logically, you know, is this true across the board? W what does it mean? It's, it's not, you're not saying you're superior if someone uh, breaks the law and you deport them or ICE deports them. Uh, the government uh, deports them because they're not supposed to be in this country. Um, we, we should be able to control national boundaries. I mean, or else you don't really even have a country. And so, um, so, so it's, it's a little vague. It sounds, it's really morally absolute. And, and this is one thing you need to get used to when evangelicals speak is you need to ask them to define their terms. What do you mean? Bring up scenarios and say, well, what, do you, what about in this scenario? And because the problem is oftentimes um, they're, they're very morally indignant about things. And they speak in very absolute terms morally, but then the application is ex completely vague. So that allows them to have a lot of self-righteousness and really critique and blast things they want to blast. And they can even join with hand in hand with Black Lives Matter and, and you know, neo-Marxist groups. And then try to wiggle their way out of endorsing everything that group stands for by saying, well, I was just indignant about, you know, this aspect of what they're marching for. And um, I, I just think that they need to be more specific. Tim Keller needs to be more specific here with what, what does he mean by this? Um, many Christians think that Jesus saved us merely through the cross. 
where he paid the penalty of our sin. And the resurrection was just a grand miracle by which God proved that Jesus was the Son of God. Okay, well, the resurrection wasn't just a grand miracle. I mean, it was more than, it was a fulfillment of prophecy, but um, it was that, but far more, Romans 4.25. This inadequate view, okay, notice what he's doing. He's already, he's, he's saying there's, there's two views, right? There's, there's the right view, there's the wrong view. The inadequate view uh, conceives of the gift of salvation in exclusively individualistic terms as a new personal relationship with God and little else. But Jesus rose as the first fruits of the future resurrection from the dead. And as such, he brings us the Holy Spirit with its, uh, with, which is the down payment or first installment of the future renewed world and universe. So this is the Neo-Kyperian stuff creeping into Tim Keller's theology. He's, Tim Keller is a Neo-Calvinist, which means he's very influenced by Abraham Kuyper. He's very influenced by the way Richard Mao conceived of Abraham Kuyper. And uh, Richard Mao um, kind of understood salvation, the atonement, to extend uh, to political structures. Uh, he wrote a book in 1971, I believe it was, Political Evangelism, where he makes this argument. He says part of the evangelis, evangelism of the church ought to be political activism, essentially, because we need to go save structures. And, and what you get is this really weird kind of idea where you could actually have, let's say, a prison system where all the prison guards are not Christians. They're all pagans. But you've redeemed the structure because, you know, you've, you've implemented some reform. And, and this is the atonement of Christ. Uh, extending into um, what were secular spheres. I mean, of course, Neo-Kyperians say there is no secular sphere. It's all, it's all one. And so uh, Tim Keller, um, I think, is going this direction as well here in a sense, because what he's saying is the reality of the future kingdom, uh, the, the, uh, what's going to happen in the future, the, the heavenly kingdom. Well, that's, you know, there's some sense of that which uh, takes place on earth. It, there's a fulfillment. And there is a partial fulfillment. We're in the already but not yet right now. But the Neo-Kyperians tend to want to say, um, you know, when we pray thy kingdom come, we're, we're saying, you know, Lord, implement your kingdom here. And, and so he's saying that uh, the cross, so, so, so he's linking this to salvation. This is where you get, like, racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. He's saying the cross, salvation, the atonement, the resurrection, the things that, um, that Jesus did on this earth. Well, that was, it wasn't just individual sins. Uh, it was so much more than that. It was to restore the world and the universe. And, and he's right about that. But the question is, when does that happen? And, and how should the church be involved in that happening? Because the church has a very specific mission. And is it to reform all of culture and society and um, and, and where are those lines? And, and a lot of the times when people like Tim Keller bring this up, Russell Moore will do this, Bruce Ashford will do this, uh, J.D. Greer will do this, they don't define, again, they don't define exactly when or how. It's just, you know, Jesus died to redeem uh, political structures too, and that means marching with Black Lives Matter. You know, that's, I guess, what you're supposed to take from that kind of logic. He goes on, he says, one of the marks of that new future world will be the end of all racial, ethnic, and national strife, alienation, and violence. God will say, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork in Israel, my inheritance. Now, of course, this in Isaiah 19, this isn't about, God's not saying I'm an anti-racist in this passage. God, what, the point of blessing these is, hey, these are, these are kingdoms that we've been at war with, we've had strife with. Um, th these are kingdoms that worship false gods, and they're going to be they're going to they're going to be worshiping the true god they're going to be under the dominion of the king 
Um, they're going to be part of the inheritance of God. This is a story about God and what God does. Uh, a vivid expression of racial equality before the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. It's not a vivid expression of racial equality. That's not the point of Isaiah. Now go read Isaiah 19. You're not going to find those kinds of words in Isaiah 19. That's not what it's about. When Isaiah describes the new creation, Isaiah 65, he speaks of the nations and kings of the earth uniting before God. Revelation echoes this. When it foresees the kings of all the nations bringing their glory into the city of God and the people of God consisting of every time, uh, tribe, uh, tongue tribe, people, and nation. So this is getting back to the multi-ethnic church model. It's, it's something we need to do now. But notice the passages he brings up. This is, these are all things God does. And yeah, God uses means, but where, you, where do you get in Scripture, specifically the New Testament, where do you get that the church or Christians are the means by which God establishes this uh, diversity in heaven? Um, we do that through missions, I guess, but, but missions is just we're trying to just share the gospel with people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. We just share the gospel. Um, we're not doing some kind of quota system. We're not... Uh, going specifically to some groups just because of the color of their skin. We're going to groups because they don't know Jesus and they need the gospel. And that's the mission. That's the focus. Uh, God's the one that's going to bring everyone together. And it happens at the end. It, it doesn't happen. It's not supposed to be a reality in your church right now necessarily. It's great if you have diversity. I grew up in a very diverse church. But what Tim Keller is trying to do is he's taking these passages about the future kingdom, about what's going to happen and what God's going to, ha- to, to do and he's trying to then say, well, that's, you know, I'm going to tie this burden to the back of Christians. Christians are supposed to be uh, involved in doing this. And this is part of somehow anti-racism. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, um, I mean, you, you could make the argument. You could say, look, this is part of Israel specifically, the kingdom of Israel, the new Jerusalem. I mean, is that God, is, is God being partial there? Is God being racist because he favors this nationality? He gave promises to Israel and he didn't give them to other nations? I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, Tim Keller. Uh, the, you know, you should, you should know better than this. Uh, for most people, then, race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. Okay, that's an accusation. He just, I mean, this isn't, he, he, we didn't do a study on this. He's just, this is his bias. Most people, race and culture are a kind of self-righteousness. Is it okay to be proud of your culture? Let me put it this way. Is it okay to be humbled by the fact that God allowed you to be part of a rich culture or a culture that received the gospel and um, spread the gospel? What if you're Scottish, let's say, and you know a lot of missionaries came from Scotland? Is it okay to say, Lord, I'm, I'm humbled that you, you made me a Scotsman <laughs> and I have this great heritage. I'm sorry to see it going, but you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Grateful for what's been passed down to me culturally? Or is that just self-righteousness? Well, no. I mean, look, it, it put, break this down into kind of a smaller uh, chunk. Let's talk about families. Um, on Father's Day, when you, you know, give a mug to your dad and you're like, you're the best dad in the world, are you lying? Are you saying all other dads are terrible dads? Or are you just saying something about your dad and you're grateful for your dad because the Lord has given you your dad? Are you grateful for your family because the Lord has uh, allowed you to be born into a particular family. Not everyone has the family you do. Um, but is it okay to be grateful for those things? So, look, God works everything together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Some people were not born into good family situations. Others were born into better family situations. And there's a range. And God knows everything that we need to bring us to himself. And 
and, and I think being grateful for those things isn't in, it, it's not what Tim Keller's talking about here. It's not self-righteousness. I don't think I'm better than other people just because I'm grateful for my family or my culture. You know, celebrate American holidays. Does that mean that we think all other nations are terrible or no? Here's what he says. I'm going to kind of bring this to a close. Um, but it is fair to say, is it fair to say, that since the modern idea of race has been forged by white people in order to justify their slavery and colonialism, that therefore, while the Bible may address tribalism or ethnic prejudice, it does not speak to racism. I don't think so. As we have seen, the deep human need to bolster and justify ourselves produces some form of othering, choosing a group of people to define yourself against by despising them as inferior to you. Oh, so horrible. So horrible. Um, <laughs> this, is, this sounds like Levinas, the, the French philosopher, this othering concept. He was a postmodern philosopher, and he thought you couldn't ever, remember in postmodernism, you have a different set of experiences, so it's very hard to communicate, and you can't rationally necessarily do it. But you can show empathy in this space. We have a lot of talk today about spaces. And you can show, act, through acts of kindness and compassion, you can interact with someone who's of a lower, who, who, uh, who's more oppressed than you in a lower power strata, etc. And, and that's, uh, that forms transcendence. It's, it's actually pagan, if you look at what Levinus was saying. He's basically, he's saying that this is deity. That this, you can interact with the deity by showing these acts of compassion uh, to people that are oppressed. But you can't really ever understand them. And so othering is when you, you just don't, you're not going to show compassion. You're just, they're different and I'm not going to form a space or go into a space and interact with them. Tim Keller seems to have been influenced by this, which is not a surprise. Gospel Coalition uh, has training on postmodernism, essentially. And... And so he's, he's bringing in that concept and he's tying it to race and he's saying race was just invented to justify slavery and colonialism. And look, I, I can't you know, give you a full picture on all this right now, but um, put yourself in the shoes real quick of a European. Pick any country in Europe. Uh, we'll pick England just because they're the whipping post in America, right? England was terrible for what they did. Uh, you're a British person and um, it's, you know, it, it's 1600 or something and, and you're an explorer and you come across different peoples uh, in the United States, uh, let's say in Africa, where, in other places in the world and you, and you notice a few things. You notice their culture's different, right? Um, and, and perhaps there's, maybe there are some bigoted prejudices you have that just like the other culture would probably have about you. But you do notice some things, perhaps. Maybe you notice, hey, maybe there's a tribe there. They're cannibalistic. They're eating each other. Um, look at the way that they treat women in their tribe. Uh, look at, I mean, some things that social justice warriors would find very offensive. I mean, their slavery is barbaric in this tribe. They're, whatever the case may be, you're looking and you're saying, well, this is savagery. This is, you know, this is pagan. This is wrong. They, what they need is Christianity. We need to send missionaries here. We need them to, to know the gospel. Now, if you were that person, are you a racist? This is a question you, you need to grapple with. Is that racism? Is that wrong? Is that evil? Tim Keller, I think, would say that's evil uh, to, to look down on this other culture. Well, not are all cultures equal? I don't think they are. And, and the Lord has done wor a work in some cultures. I mean, look, Western culture, if you want to, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different cultures in, within Western civilization. But, you know, in Great Britain, they're painting themselves blue. They're killing each other. They're, they're, they're in barbarism. And then Christianity is the thing that comes and really makes a difference. And, and so uh, the culture 
was able to progress culturally speaking, morally speaking. Um, family stayed together. Uh, you know, the passion of sexuality, the energies of sexuality were harnessed into family instead of just someone sowing their wild oats and creating havoc all over the place. And so this, these civilizations were built up. Technology increased. There, there's all sorts of good fruits to following God's law. And if you look at another culture and they're not following God's law as much, it would be natural to say, well, um, they, they probably could use some help. They could probably use the uh, Christianity and its influence and, and maybe technology, maybe other things that have advanced in, in Western countries. And so the only reason I bring that up is to say this. There's a mixture. When you read literature from the last 400 years, you're going to find a mixture of things. You're going to find a lot of people who are civilizationists. They just thought, when they, when they talk about uh, races, they'll even use that term. When they talk about sometimes the word white, they'll use. They'll use European, uh, Western. When they talk about that, they're saying that they, there's a culture that they find to be superior in a cultural sense. I'm not necessarily justifying it. I'm not telling you it's wrong either. I'm just saying this is... This is, I mean, you, you hear the word race even ascribed to genders, the race of women, the race of, you know, whatever. Um, it's just people, just means people. It wasn't really until Darwinism came that people started taking race. And it was really a little before Darwin uh, that scientists started doing this. But trying to f figure out why are these, there, there's these disparities. How come some cultures are just, they, they won't advance? And, and they're morally depraved. And they would start saying, well, it must be their biology. It must be because they got smaller heads or they're just not as smart or they evolved from a, from a different area or something. And, and they're just not as far along as we are. Well, that is, that's scientific racism. That's the kind of racism that I think Keller would probably want to critique. But critical race theorists just lump everything into this one basket. And I probably took way too long explaining that. But uh, when, when he talks about this, is this race was just, it was used to justify uh, colonialism and slavery. No, it wasn't used to just justify those things. He's talking about civilizationists mostly here. Uh, yeah, there were scientific racism, races who came along and did do that. But there were also civilizationists who said that, yeah, we have a, a superior culture. We have something to offer. Did they always apply it right? No. Were there horrible things that happened? Yes. But it's more complex than Tim Keller wants to make it. And that, if, if, if I don't get any other point across, I'd like to at least get that one across. He's being dishonest. He's being black and white. Um, he's being morally um, absolute. And he has no right to do that. All right. Um, so, so we have this deep human need to bolster and justify ourselves. <laughs> um, it's called pride. And yes, uh, Tim Keller even has it. And a lot of social justice warriors have it. And they want to justify what they're doing currently by changing the whole structure of the church and and so i wish he'd take his own advice uh daniel repented for the sins of his ancestors daniel 9. aiken's family was executed for aiken's personal sin of stealing plunder in joshua 7. so notice what he's doing he's laying the guilt on and then in the next part of the article he's going to give you application this is what you need to do you need to repent for the sin of your ancestors first of all daniel 9 um daniel does not repent for the sins of his ancestors he's not taking responsibility for their sin and saying yeah, I'm, I, I'm capable of repenting for what they did, their actions. What he's saying is there is a covenant that applied to generations of people of which he is part. And the present sins of Israel are reflective uh, because they were, the present sins are passed down from fathers. In other words, children tend to behave uh, like their parents do. 
And so that's what he's saying. He's saying that um, uh, be, because the habits of parents were to break God's law, to break the covenant, children are doing the same thing. And we repent for all of that. We, we realize we've inherited these things and we are repenting for our sin. He's repenting. Read Daniel 9. You're not going to find him personally taking responsibility for the sin of his fathers. Now, um, there's another dynamic going on here Tim Keller doesn't let you know about, and that's the, the nature of the covenant, right? Is, is there a, I mean, Keller and Greer and these guys, they don't like you mixing America, rah, 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 with Christianity. But yet, when they do things like this, they're, they're almost implying that there's some kind of covenant God has with the United States or the West or something. God's He's favored us and we've broken the covenant and we need to repent because our forefathers have broken the covenant. I mean, that's the situation more in Daniel. But I thought we weren't supposed to believe in that kind of Christian nationalism. So um, Achan's family was executed for Achan's personal sin of stealing, plunder in Joshua 7. Uh, yes, but realize Achan didn't only steal. Achan buried the things he stole where? In the tent, in the home of his family. You think they knew it was there? Yeah, they, they probably knew it was there. Um, and the other thing to, to bring up here is the fact that God often judges. I mean, you see this throughout the Old Testament. He judges people for what individuals and groups within that group of people do. Um, and this is why when I pray, I pray for what's happening in the United States. I pray, Lord, remember your elect, please. I know we're going to suffer some of the consequences for things that have happened in this country. And um, it's not because we're complicit in all of it, but it's because when the Lord judges, he, he judges all. I mean, look, look at even, um, I mean, he was, he's been merciful. The Lord is very merciful. Look at what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he pulled Lot and his family out. Do you think there were a few people in Sodom and Gomorrah who weren't as depraved, who got shellacked? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, there's, this is just how uh, judgment oftentimes works. When the Lord sends a hurricane, the hurricane doesn't always differentiate between one home and another. And ultimately, we all deserve judgment for our sin anyway. So any, anything short of that is, is God's grace. But to try to make this about, yeah, you know, there was slavery and racism in the United States, and uh, we need to repent of that because Aiken's family was executed for Aiken's personal sin. Yeah, no, that doesn't fly. Uh, second reason, uh, bringing it to a real conclusion now, um, the second reason is that the Bible supports the idea that there are such things as unjust social structures. In Proverbs 10 through 12, we see a number of statements that indicate that a lack of personal responsibility can bring someone into poverty. So he's trying to use Proverbs to justify this structural sin. Now, here's the thing. Um, is there structural sin? Is, is there, are there systems that are evil? Yeah, there can be systems that are evil. And this is why I always say when someone brings this up, it's systemic. Okay, show me the law. Show me what we can do to change something. And of course, there, there's hardly ever an answer. Um, because those whatever laws they're complaining about have been amended, they've been you know they they don't they're not in effect. Uh, so so then what is it then? If it's not a law that we can fix, then then what is it that makes the system uh, terrible? Well, it has to be individuals within the system. And how do you change individuals? We have to change hearts. <laughs> so overturning the whole system is not the the way to do it. What what are, Keller and others are arguing for is this? It's not just systemic. All right. They're, when they say systemic, they're actually saying that, no, it's invisible. It's this, it's just happening all over the place. Uh, you, you're part of it. You live in it. You don't see it because you live in it, uh, but it's there. And if you ask them to point to specifics, they can't really do it. All that they can bring up is disparities. And, you know, and I have done some episodes on that showing that doesn't fly. But, and, and biblical justice doesn't take that kind of thing into account. 
So if there is a disparity and you can find, hey, here's the law that's causing that, then change the law. But if, if it's just, well, it's just capitalism, it's just the free market, it's just the constitution, it's just, uh, just America itself. We just need to overturn the whole thing. That's the Marxist revolutionary talk. And that's what Tim Keller is selling to you right here. All right, last quote uh, from Tim Keller. And this is the, I promise you, this is the longest question. Uh, what does it mean to repent of racism? In one sense, the answer is simple. Repenting is first and primarily to God. So he wants you to repent of racism. That's the bottom line. We're getting to the, the crux of the matter. We need to repent of racism, even if we're not racist. So he makes this long, sophisticated argument, tying a bunch of scriptures together, tying all these concepts together to try to build uh, this, this tower of an argument to get to the pinnacle to say, and this is why you need to repent of racism, to join in with the Black Lives Matter groups and lament your white privilege, etc., etc. And I question every single step of the way. Pretty much. I mean, every, every link in this chain that he's trying to uh, weld here um, is not a link that I find to be legitimate. Uh, this is not biblical. This is, um, this is him trying to fashion some verses, so some put a veneer of verses on top of social justice theory. All right, so that's Tim Keller, uh, Sin of Racism. Uh, some other questions here. Uh, we're going to talk, wow, a lot of people commenting here. Um, praying for the Holy Spirit to help you see God's truth. Yeah, thank you. Um, to say Tim Keller is selling you Marxism is unsubstantiated and based solely on your opinion. Well, I mean, I, what, what else do you want to call it? I mean, there, there's this is in a context of a Marxist revolution in this country, and I've done several videos about this already, so I'm not going to rehash everything, but um, w what else do you want to call this? I mean, he's, he's not doing this 10 years ago. He's not doing this. He, he's doing this right at the time when everything's coming down. We need to just defund the police and take down all the monuments. We need to, uh, the whole system is just shot. And obviously the guys behind the Black Lives Matter, I mean, they're self-avowed Marxists. They talk about it. I mean, so um, this isn't happening in a vacuum somewhere. Uh, Tim Keller knows what he's doing. And if you look, I think I wrote an article on Enemies Within the Church, I think carried it um, on Tim Keller and Marxism. You can go look that up where he's quoting liberation theologians. He's talking about how much he admires the Frankfurt School, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and one last thing. I do have a book. I got to get to this next question, but I do have a book um, that will be coming out this summer. And, and I specifically draw some lines. I show you. And what, here's one of the things about this. This is, this is, it's interesting to me. A lot of people will say, you can't accuse them of Marxism. They're, they never, they, they're not reading Karl Marx. How dare you? You know, they're very upset about this. And one of, one of the things that makes this difficult for people to see is the fact that guys like Tim Keller, they're not getting their stuff necessarily directly from Karl Marx, right? Karl Marx stands in a, there, there's a line stemming from Karl Marx of people who are Marxists who took his ideas further. Uh, the Frankfurt School is one example of that. You have, you know, Antonio Gramsci, uh, you have London, London School of Economics, uh, Herbert Marcuse would be in the Frankfurt School. Then you have the critical race theorists, uh, D'Angelo and, um, and Delgado, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a, a sort of a, a trajectory here. And liberation theology stands in this line. Look, Richard Mao, who Tim Keller gets a lot of his information from, a lot of his influence, he was a Marxist before, and look, he, he, he was a member of SDS. He, I mean, I could go into to more details on it, but Richard Mao, uh, the, the neo-Kyperian, neo-Calvinist guy from the 70s who's still alive, still lamenting his you know, white privilege and so forth, he was influenced by Marxists. He was part of that. 
he pretty much, he, he started experimenting with other versions of Christianity and other religions. He came back to Christianity and brought his Marxism with him. And that's the same for Ron Sider and Jim Wallace, Wes Granberg Michelson, uh, Sharon Gallagher. Um, I mean, the list just goes on and on with these guys in the 70s. And so when you look at the current crop of pastors, they're not necessarily influenced by Marx directly. They're influenced by people who are influenced by new left thinkers who are influenced by Marx. So it's someone who was influenced by someone who was influenced by someone who's influenced by someone who's influenced by Karl Marx. So, so, um, so when we use the word Marxism to talk about these people, it's not being unfair. We're saying that there's an actual, it's like saying Jeffersonian or, um, you know, they're, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a theological term, you know, Calvinistic might be a good term to use, but it's like, you know, did you learn your Calvinism directly from John Calvin? No, you're in a line. You're probably someone who learned from Edwards, who learned from Calvin or something. So it, it's, um, it's fair to do that. We do that with all sorts of other things. Um, but for some reason, you bring out the term Marx. You know, people say you can't do that. All right, let's get to the next question because I'm belaboring the point on Keller. Uh, How Alexander Screwed Up America is a book by Brian McClanahan, which I have not read. I downloaded it. I want to read it. But um, I, I suspect the person who asked me this question may have read it may have read this book on Alexander Hamilton. Um, we see two main systems of political thought in our nation. The Jeffersonian, through about 1860, more focused on the idea of small republics, agrarian virtues, and decentralized power to the states. The other is Hamiltonian, which is more urban in nature and emphasizes a strong federal government. Why should a Christian, uh, what should a Christian keep in mind when considering these governmental philosophies? Um, man, there's a lot I could say. I'm going to keep it short though. Uh, probably the first thing is you know, Jeffersonian um, political theory, which is we we're just talking about Jeffersonianism. Uh, it's more it's more agrarian. It's more being self sufficient is really the focus. So freedom, liberty is contingent on people being able to have self government, and self government is contingent on being able to provide for yourself and be independent. And and I love this idea. I think a lot of people are waking up to this and saying, yeah, I want to get out of my corporate job in the city because I want to be independent. I don't want to live through this COVID thing again. I want to have my own, my own field with my own crops, with, you know, et cetera. And that's a nice thought. Not everyone can do that. But you know, Jefferson envisioned kind of uh, that kind of a, a country. He didn't like central banking. He didn't like consolidation. He was a, you know, kind of a state's rights guy. He, and he liked localism. And I tend to like localism too. I think here are some things for Christians to think about. Um, because we are evil, right, as humans, and because humans tend to want to use power to promote evil, uh, having smaller areas in which um, people are more accountable is probably a good thing. So in other words, if you have, you know, the mayor of your town is more accountable to you than the president of the United States. He's more likely you can, to listen to you. Um, and, 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 and so, so there's a check and a balance there. Uh, if something goes wrong in your area, you can just flee to another area. It's easier when it's um, in smaller segments like that. Uh, so, so that's kind of the main thing that I think of. Um, I think of you know the, the model given to us in the nation of Israel. It was really a confederation before um, uh, before, before Solomon, especially. It was that more of a you know tribal system, and um, and and then when there's consolidation, the potential for evil goes up. And of course, more consolidation. And you know, uh, I always think it's funny when um, when ten percent, a tax of ten percent, and the king taking your sons and daughters is seen as oppression. You know, ten percent. We would love ten percent. 
but um, but these things were kind of they were warned against. Israel having a king wasn't viewed as a good thing, and so I tend to favor the Jeffersonian uh, political model myself. I think Hamilton uh, centralized things, Lincoln centralized more, Woodrow Wilson centralized, FDR centralized. Lyndon Baines Johnson centralized, the list goes on, and here we are today with uh, everyone wants to cry out to Washington whenever there's a problem instead of looking to their local community. Here's a related question from someone else, interesting, some completely different person. How should Christians consider the growing chorus of voices discussing some of uh, reparation or secession in America? The idea has definitely picked up steam on both the left and the right in recent years. Uh, so it's kind of two separate questions, reparation or secession. Uh, I did a whole video on reparations. You can go watch that. So um, short answer is uh, I believe in restitution. Biblically, I don't believe in reparations uh, for things that people haven't done. And, and there's a whole lot more that I've said about it. So go watch that video. Um, secession. Um, so, so, so here's my view in a nutshell uh, on the idea of secession. For some reason, this is like one topic which traditionally, up until very recently, this will get you kicked out of Democrat and Republican circles if you start talking about this. Because for some reason, both sides view the nation as almost sacred. There's almost like a religious attachment to the United States. People that aren't even Christians have it. You know, they, they look at the United States, they say it cannot be divided. It is, you know, it's locked, locked in. It's the Hotel California. And, and so I, I don't know why that is exactly. Um, it's interesting. I did talk to one person, a historian, who told me they think there's a Catholic mysticism connection. I'd be very curious to see how that works out. I've never heard that. But um, whatever the case is, uh, this is where we live. Now, that's starting to fracture because of identity politics and uh, people in some areas like California. That's the one state that gets talked about more than anything. It used to be Texas. Now it's California. Uh, they're not in step with the rest of the country on a lot of things. And so uh, they've talked about uh, people there have talked about seceding. Um, the question I think that should be asked is, is it legal? Is this something that is legal? And of course, most people go back to the Civil War and say, no, it can't be legal because look what happened. And might, that's a might makes right kind of argument. Um, I, I think you need to go back to the Constitution itself. And is there anything the Constitution says about this? Not really. And so the 10th Amendment, I think, would apply. The power is not delegated uh, to the United States or given to the states and the people. And so, um, so I, I would say, I mean, you look at the ratification agreements, I mean, Virginia, New York, I think Rhode Island, they all had statements saying, basically, we can leave if we want. <laughs> you can look that up, ratification agreements, secession. Um, this, I mean, the Hartford Convention was in New England before the Civil War, and they wanted to secede. You know, New England was talking about joining Canada. I mean, this, this talk has been around for a long time. And it, it's not a surprise since the United States was born out of secession, in a sense. They seceded from Great Britain. In fact, um, at the close of that war, uh, the Great Britain made 13 separate peace treaties. Um, and then you had the Articles of Confederation, and the 13 colonies seceded from the Articles of Confederation to form the Constitution. And if you read the Articles of Confederation, it's supposed to be perpetual, and they seceded anyways. So, so I, I don't buy that this is just some subtle legal, uh, legal thing. It, it's not. Um, th this is something that I think... Uh, especially those of the Jeffersonian tradition would have said, yeah, of course you can secede. And, and some would have argued, I think like John C. Calhoun argued, well, it's got to be under these certain parameters and so forth. But, um, but when, you, when you look at just a state like California and kind of how far left they are, 
they, they do seem out of step. I mean, how, do, how does a, a state like California or a city, I should say, a lot of California is conservative, but a city like Los Angeles or San Francisco, how do they coexist, uh, you know, with a state like, um, like, I don't know, Oklahoma? I mean, completely different cultures. Um, it, it, to, 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 you know, have a president that has to rule over both of these places and it's going to be one side or the other. I mean, it, it does seem unfair to me. Um, so, I mean, I, I would hope that California gets its act together, uh, but, you know, it, it may be peaceably seceding may be a better option than the civil strife and, and possibly war. I, I, I don't have a problem saying that. Here's another question. I have uh, friends that are going down the social justice path, and one recently invited me to an online class held in part by a woman pastor who, according to the person recommending the class, regularly preaches on Sunday mornings to a mixed audience. I don't want to shut down conversation with these people, but I also don't want to shut down conversations. Uh, I'm sorry. I also don't want to shut down conversations with people, but I uh, don't want to condone any anti-biblical behaviors. I'm not sure I can even attend the class in good conscience. How would you respond? Um, I probably wouldn't go, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes you're out of obligation in scenarios that you'd rather not be in. But if you have a choice and you can't, and, and you don't have to go, um, and I would just explain very nicely, like, look, I'm sure, you know, your pastor is very well-intentioned and maybe she's got some good things to say. Um, but, you know, bring it back to scripture. You know, go to all the passages on uh, women preaching and say, what do you think about this? Um, I, this, this is, I'm having a hard time. I want to come, uh, to support you just be honest with them, but, but I'm having a hard time with these passages. That's what I would do rather than condone it. Um, at what point do you shake off the dust from your feet and move on from people that claim to be Christian, but will not listen to Bible or reason? Um, I think Matthew 18, obviously simply gives a, a good example of this, to be honest. It's, um, I don't think you wait that long. I, I really think most Christians wait way too long on this, and then they find a situation in which they're trapped. Uh, they're going to a church, and they just want to give grace, give grace, give grace. It's good to give grace. It's good to assume the best. Um, but you need to confront things when you see them, in love, of course, and, and then, um, uh, or at least try to confront, approach it. Sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll dip my, my toe in the water a little bit, kind of see, is there any interest in seeing what I have to say? Sometimes there's no interest. <laughs> sometimes people don't care. And, and you, you probably have your answer at that point. If they just don't, they give, you, know, you send your emails, text messages, phone calls, whatever, in person, and the, nothing's reciprocated or they avoid the topic, you, you know they don't, they're not going to listen. And that's not a good thing. Um, even you know, a pastor of a large church should be willing to listen. Uh, even if you've know, you got to get on the schedule and it's a month out, should be willing to listen. Now, if you're able to confront it and then you don't see change and you get lip service, then you confront it again. And that's where I think Matthew 18 comes in. And, and uh, you follow that as closely as you can. You may not always be able to, um, but, but you, I think you go through that process. You bring others uh, to, to try to um, confront the issue as well. And uh, if it just seems like there's no repentance, then, then you move on. Um, but it, it, this shouldn't take years. You know, this is what I've seen with some people. It just takes years. And here's uh, the last uh, question from patrons, and I've, <laughs> I've gone almost an hour. Uh, what's your process in preparing for podcasts? Well, that's a simple question. Uh, my process. Man, uh, every podcast is different. I mean, sometimes I'm critiquing something. Sometimes I want to sort of paint a narrative and show you something. Um, I want to educate. So it, it just really depends. Sometimes it's interviews. Uh, I think more often than not lately, I've been 
um, I collect some data. I notice something and I know there's more to it and sometimes I'll just kind of see what data comes in. I'll put it in a PowerPoint. I'll cut out a lot of things and then I will give the PowerPoint to you. I'll just go through and explain things and I'll have some rabbit trails will go down, but that's how I prepare. You know, I pray about it. Um, I try to think of relevant scriptures sometimes uh, or principles from the Bible that would apply. And, and that's pretty much it. It's really not not that uh, hard, or for me at least. I mean, sometimes it's time consuming, but it's pretty simple for the most part. So uh, that being said, now we are opening up questions uh, to the live audience. I know there's been a lot of discussion already. Um, man, there's, there's a lot of comments here. So I'm not going to probably get to all of them. I'm just kind of skimming through. Please, if you have a question specifically, uh, short, succinct, um, comment right now, and I will try to get to it. Um, I, here's one from Steve Hughes, a uh, suggestion on how to address the current climate in a summary fashion to a group of churches that see what is going on in the country, but probably have very little background to understand the why. Yeah, the first part is trying to get people educated on it. That is the hardest part. And it's because most people are resistant to that. They have jobs, they, they you know, it's time. Um, and who wants to dive into critical race theory, right? Um, my, my passion has been to try to make this simple as I can. And in the video format, I think helps people listen uh, when they're working. And so send them videos that are helpful on this uh, if, if, they, if that will help educate them. Um, send them books. I mean, if you're trying to understand like critical race theory and intersectionality, I, I think the book Critical Race Theory by Richard Delgado is really good. It's not Christian. It's by someone who loves it. But you at least understand, okay, this is what it is. Um, I think, uh, you know, some people have said the buy what standard film is good. And, and, and there's some good things about that. I think the sovereign nation stuff, the Trojan horse videos, they, those are pretty good. Um, I know some books are going to be coming out soon. Um, I'm one person, but there's others who are, are writing some things. So there should be more resources from a Christian perspective coming out soon. I think Thomas Sowell's books uh, on disparities, I think the quest for cosmic justice is probably one of his best ones on this. But it kind of pokes a hole in this um, systemic narrative that just because there is a disparity, there must be some bias. And uh, so some people, some of this, this stuff, I think the video that I did on um, the, the new religion, uh, why, are, why are all my friends Marxists? I think that one kind of lays out in a simple fashion how this is a new religion. And, uh, and, and I've added to that uh, chart that I have in that video, and I'm, I'm going to try to release that later this summer with some, some helpful kind of Sunday school things for a, a church. Um, here's some other questions. Let's see. <laughs> wow, my church recommended white privilege. I mean, usually they recommend um, books that are Christianized critical race books. But yeah, you got your church recommending uh, the actual thing. That's interesting. Um, other questions. Let's see here. A lot of discussion here. Um. <laughs> so, John, uh, is the response to all this that we trust God's sovereignty and keep preaching the gospel? That's one response. Yeah, I, well, that, that is the response. It, no, that's not one response. That is the response. Um, but we, we don't just preach the gospel. There, there is a sort of a knee-jerk reaction that I think some Christians have, which is just, it's just the gospel. It's just the gospel. It's just, look, yes, the gospel is the mission of the church. Um, as individuals, we're not just members of churches, we're members of families, we're members of communities, um, we run businesses. I mean, there's a lot of other hats that as individuals we wear, and we want to be Christians in all those uh, spheres. And so um, 
I think the answer is to, yes, preach the gospel, because what do you do with a false gospel? You preach the true gospel, uh, and you trust in God's sovereignty because God knows what he's doing. But you're also going to correct those who contradict, even and within the church especially. You correct those who contradict. And so you got to do some apologetics. Um, you got to correct these things. So it's more than just preaching the gospel. You have to show, okay, here's how the gospel contradicts this message that you're preaching. Um, so let, let's see, uh, some other questions. I'm going to kind of skip to the end here. Question, interesting to see Phil Vischer posted a link on his blog to citations to his Race in America video, and he mentioned one correction he needed to make. Any chance you could do a Q&A with Phil? I guess, I, I don't know how that would even work. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little awkward. I <laughs> did a whole, like, two-hour critique of his uh, video. So um, I could invite him, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I just uh, I just don't know where we would get, to be honest. I guess that's kind of... Um, so, so some people have asked me this. Why, why doesn't your podcast include more... Why don't you have like Tim Keller or Al Mohler on? And I'm like, look, you got to understand something about a lot of these guys. They don't want to acknowledge that someone like myself exists. And I know that's hard for some of you who are fans and everything. Um, and you say, well, you have a large enough following. They should acknowledge you. No, they're, they're not going to, many of them. Um, if they ever acknowledge me, or, um, or and this applies to some extent to like A.D. Robles and, and other guys who do the same kind of thing, they will be very vague. They'll say, voices on the internet that produce strife, or uh, you know, those who would say this, but they won't specifically mention who they're talking about. Yeah, a lot of times it's me. I mean, Danny Aiken has done this a few times. Southeastern guys have done this, where they'll do like a, a podcast or a, a live video, and they talk about a young man, or they'll talk about uh, you know <laughs> voices of dissent and so forth. They're talking about me. They're talking about me. They're talking about people like me. Um, there's there's not a lot of a willingness to to do those kinds of interactions. I'm willing to do it. If someone's willing to have an adult conversation, that's key. Um, a lot of the people that are, have been willing to come on up, and usually they're people, the people who have offered have been people that don't have a platform. They're, and they're, they're usually just raging social justice warriors. Uh, sometimes they try to make th themselves out not to be, and I don't know them. And so I'm like, well, let's get to know each other a little. And you find out they, they're incapable of having an adult conversation um, more often than not. And so... It's got to be an, one. I care about you guys. It's got to be a conversation that edifies you guys. If someone wants to go and uh, talk to Phil Vischer for me and invite him on, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I would be more than happy to talk to him. I just don't think Phil Vischer's the expert on any of this stuff. He's getting this. He's getting most of his information from the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I critiqued Michelle Alexander. I don't think we have much more to learn from Phil Vischer, but I could be wrong. So if someone knows something I don't, uh, that's fine. Um, John, what Bible teachers do you recommend? Um, man, uh, I don't know. There's there's Bible teachers. Um, I think, so So who do I listen to um, when I'm working through sometimes biblical passages? Um, I do, I don't agree with everything John MacArthur says, but I do appreciate the way John MacArthur approaches uh, the Bible very much. Um I, I appreciate a lot of things. Now, Paul Washer doesn't do like exegetical stuff as much as he does topical kind of sermons. Sometimes he'll do a little bit of an exegetical sermon. Um, I've appreciated some of his work. Um, there, I mean, a lot of the guys that, that I like are honestly not alive today. <laughs> That's the problem. A lot of the guys that I like to go back to, um, I mean, look, I like, I like reading um, like 
Charles Spurgeon and Leonard Ravenhill and, uh, you know, I don't know, guys that, that aren't alive today. So I don't know. I'd have to think more to really put a list together. No one's perfect either. As soon as I start mentioning names, someone's going to have a critique. No, none of, no man is perfect, including myself. Uh, do I have super chat set up? I don't even know what a super chat is. I guess I'm behind the times. Um, no, I don't have that set up. I should probably look into that, whatever, whatever that is. Um, let's see. Someone asked me if I read, I lost it, but I saw it for a, a split second there. If I had read the real Lincoln by Thomas D. Lorenzo. Yes, I have read the real Lincoln. Um, and it, it's an interesting book about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so here's some other questions. There's a lot. I'm not gonna be able to get to all of them. Uh, I use celebrity Christian churches opening their doors to the Trojan horse question as a woman. How do you, how do I reach out to these? Uh, yeah. And that's a good question. So in, in, so, so you're asking, how do you, I think it's the same way you approach leadership. Uh, you can do that as a woman. There's nothing in scripture prohibiting you from, from doing that. Um, you don't have the position of being an elder in a church, but you're still someone who's capable of discerning and um, separating between right and wrong and then sharing that with someone who is in leadership. And if, if your leadership doesn't, um, doesn't correct itself, if they're promoting bad stuff, then I would say try to find some others you can put yourself under if possible. Look, I know people who have moved. And, and I know that sounds like a big deal, you know, leaving your job, leaving. I know it's not an option for everyone, but some people have literally moved sometimes across the country to be at a church because they just know, okay, that's the leadership I want to be under. I respect that. Um, not everyone can do it. And I get that. Um, other questions here. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about election in this video because that's a deeper discussion. I have written some on it. Um, I am a compatibilist, I will say that, and uh, and so um, I, I have friends who are Minion, I have friends who are Calvinist, I would consider myself uh, more Reformed, um, but so, so I, I usually want to explain that to people just because there's all sorts of assumptions that people carry. Um, but when I talk about praying for people, trusting in God's sovereignty, and these kinds of things, I, I'm obviously invoking uh, an idea that God is in control. And I do believe that God uh, knows what's going to happen. And he's planned in a certain sense, what's going to happen is he's so sovereign, he can, he can plan the free choices of men. What to us seems like a free choice. God, uh, God has uh, known about it and planned it from eternity past. So yeah, I'm giving away some of my reformed uh, understanding there. But um, I would probably need to do a longer episode explaining what I mean by that, and maybe I will at some point. It's just not, it's not the issue today, honestly. It's not the thing that, um, that people, I mean, I think five years ago, that might have been, that was the fight in the Southern Baptist Convention. It is not the fight anymore. Uh, this, this pagan religion coming in is. Uh, would you call yourself anti-SJW? I don't know if that's to me or someone else. Um, I mean, I'm against the social justice religion. So in that sense, I, I guess I'm, I'm anti any false religion. Yes. Um, what do you think of Francis Chan's stand on this topic? And I'm not sure exactly what topic we're talking about. Um, I haven't seen Francis Chan weigh in on um, social justice that much. So, so I wouldn't know the answer to that. Uh, last question. Um, with cancel culture cracking down, good history books might start getting thrown down the memory hole any recommend ah this is a good question any recommended history books for homeschoolers 
That is a good question. That is the last question I will answer today. Um, so <laughs> my brother actually um, had made this comment to me a while back, uh, meaning <laughs> a while. It used to, a while used to mean a year. A while now, I mean, because the news cycles, there's like five of them a day. So a while now means, I think it was two weeks ago. <laughs> it feels like a long time ago. But he had said he's actually starting to collect books and movies and documentaries, etc., because he's just not sure how long they're going to be out there. I mean, I think he told me, um, you go on Amazon, you look up like the movie Gone with the Wind. And it was, at the time he was looking at it, at least, it was like over $100 to get the DVD. That's crazy. Um, but people are worried it's going to be canceled. So they want, they want to get a copy of it. So, um, so as far as actual history, you didn't ask me about entertainment. You asked me about history books and curriculum. Uh, I'm assuming for like homeschooling and training children. Um, there's, there's a few things that I, off the top of my head, uh, there might be more, but I think McClanahan Academy is a pretty good resource. Um, I know Brian McClanahan, he's a historian. Uh, he's written some of the politically incorrect guides to, I think he wrote the politically incorrect guide to real American heroes. And, um, he, he, I, I had showed you his, uh, Alexander Hamilton book earlier. He does have a homeschool curriculum in history, American history specifically, and, and he's got some special topics as well. And um, if you type in the promo code Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, uh, you can actually get a discount. I think it's like 15% on his curriculum and it's got tests and uh, worksheets and so forth. Uh, so I would recommend him. Um, there's another, there's a curriculum called the Christendom curriculum, which people have told me about, said it's really good. I don't know. I've never looked at it, so don't hold me to it, but it's a place you can look if you're interested in finding good curriculum. Um, I've heard mixed things about classical conversations when it comes to history. I've heard they're good on other things. I've heard some people tell me that social justice stuff has gotten into classical conversations. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't use, I, I'm not homeschooling anyone right now, and so I haven't looked at their curriculum, but um, that might be another place you wanna look. It, 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 you know, I don't know if those, I mean, some people have told me that it's really good in their history, so you can check it out. Um, if you don't know a lot about history, this is what I've always told people, any textbook you look at, look at the things you live through. Because if it's an American history textbook or it's part of a series, it'll eventually get to things you live through. Um, if you're old enough that you remember the Vietnam War, look up the Vietnam War. If you remember 9-11, look up 9-11. If you remember the 2000 election, look that up. Look up the things that you remember and see if they're being honest with you about those things. That's a good indication. Uh, to, to, that'll tell you whether they're being honest with you about things that you weren't there for. So that's what I would do is uh, whatever history book you're going you're gonna to look at, um, try to measure it against that standard of what you know happened versus what they're saying uh, happened in uh, times in which you lived. Um, other history books. Um, I mean, if, you, if there's specific questions about biographies or eras, I can probably recommend specific books to you. But as a general question, uh, that would be my answer for uh, curriculum. So... Anyways, I really appreciate it, guys. Uh, this has been fun. Maybe we'll do another one. Um, maybe I'll do one with just uh, questions from the audience. Um, I like to get a few of the questions from people on Patreon because uh, they, you know, if you're if you're a Patreon uh, supporter, you have access to me that others do not. So you can ask me questions. I most of the questions I just answer. Some of them I've saved, uh, like the ones in this broadcast. Uh, but um, but, but that's one way you can get my attention. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, feel free to send me questions. Uh, it might take me a little longer to get to them, but 
uh, in the next Q&A, um, I might be able to include some of them, and, uh, and I'll announce uh, when the next one is. So I appreciate it, guys. God bless you. And, uh, and next week, uh, oh, oh, some announcements real quick before I leave. Some announcements. I know Judd Saul wanted me to just remind everyone, Enemies Within the Church uh, has a matching donor. So $25,000, up to $25,000. If you donate, your donation will be matched. And, um, and I hear, I hear that the documentary on First Baptist Church of Naples will be coming out next week. And um, I'm assuming, now I think they're gonna release it probably, I mean, it's, it's their project, they're probably gonna release it through their Facebook or something, but uh, if it's not on YouTube, I may just release it through this channel, um, just so people on YouTube can see it, we'll see. But, um, but that should be coming out next week, so be excited for that. And, and, I, and that would give you, if you've been on the fence of, you know, are you gonna support enemies within the church or not? You know, is it coming out? What's going on? I mean, Judd says he, he just needs to make up a little bit of money for advertising, but, Check out the first uh, Baptist documentary, uh, first Baptist Naples documentary, and just see the quality of the work, and then and then you can make a, a determination uh, if you're kind of on the fence about that. So that's coming out next week. Um, I think that's the only announcement. I feel like there was something else I was going to say, and I can't remember what it is. So uh, maybe I'll remember next week. But hey, God bless you all. I'm so thankful for all of you, even those who disagree and just want to interact. Um, it's really, really good. Uh, I think having discussions is uh, and, and being adult about it to being just you know I, I, we're both seeking the truth let's seek it together that that is a truly christian thing and uh, a civilized thing to do <laughs> i don't see a, a lot of it happening today and so um i appreciate uh, everyone who was respectful in the comments section and uh, looking forward to next time god bless bye now sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.